This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird but love it anyway. My name is Leah Payne. I'm a historian, author, professor, and I sign my name differently every time and I worry that maybe people think I'm forging my own name on checks and things like that. Why would you do that? <laughs> I don't know. My name is I'm Brian Doak. I'm a professor and biblical scholar, and I have forged my wife's signature dozens of times for her benefit. What? For our benefit. Well, today we're going back to the Bible, or at least the world of the Bible, to talk about two weirdly fascinating forgery cases that have recently shocked the community of biblical scholars. They are shocked. Why would someone forge something? Uh, for money, the sheer thrill of mockery. <laughs> I. Those are good enough reasons. <laughs> Join us. Join us. How's uh, how's life these days? The pandemic getting you down? Oof. Yeah, you know, I'm I I the other day I saw a um a woman who she and our children are in the same um childcare network, mm-hmm. and we just looked at each other like there was this same deep weariness. Mm. Yeah, so I feel like it's going like that. We've had one, yes. What about second pandemic? How about you? Same. <laughs> same. I, I I psychologically prepared myself for all that's emerging by simply being very dour about the pandemic at first and being oh. like, oh, the pandemic is just the rib. This is just the ribbon cutting on a new era of pandemics and there'll be other things and blah, blah, blah. So it was kind of like a defense mechanism against, you know, any. And then if it doesn't happen, I could be like, wow, I'm so happy with the way the world is going. But, you know, but this has just gotten to the ridiculous. Right. Like I sent you a tweet from this comedy writer who did a really funny thing about we're rounding the last corner and around that corner is another, another corner. corner. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's kind of like we're reaching the last day of the week, but there's just was a lot past that. There are new days of the day. week. Yeah. yeah. It's exhausting. I like the one where he said something like we're, we're, um, um, we're just going to put a, do- we're, we're going to close the page on this, but we're going to put a dog ear on this because we're going to open it back up. You know, there's, we're going downhill, but at the end of that hill, there's a pit with like these big spikes. Yeah. That's how, that's exactly Yep. I mean, I think that that I'm sure it's gotten a bazillion plays because I think everyone's just feeling like that right now. Well, you know what we should do? Yes. In order to not not think like this or talk like this, we should talk about forged artifacts from the biblical world. What do you say? Well, I'm actually really excited about this and I'm not even that's not forged excitement. Not even not joking. fake excitement. Not even I'm not joking at all because this is like this is one of these epic stories that I've been wanting to ask you about, and it it just is like the story that keeps on giving. It keeps coming up again yeah. and again. And these again. are these are not exactly hot news of this week, but there are new books out, and there are kind of like unfolding things. And you know, in biblical studies, very new really ever happens, and there are very few new discoveries. So <laughs> the, the Dead Sea Scrolls thing was the like Dead sea Scrolls. Oh, decades ago. That was awesome in the 1940s, 1950s, <laughs> 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Well, people still do research on the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it's not as the shine has worn off of mm-hmm. them. Let's say for everyone outside of the Dead Sea Scrolls scholar communities, for the most part. Well, I can I run a headline past you and just ask you a little bit about it yeah, because it's related to, of course. Um, weirdly, it, and this this stuff ends up intersecting with my field as well. So I'm curious. So here's the headline: Has the mystery of the Shapira scroll finally been solved? Mm-hmm. Ancient manuscript dismissed as a fake 
since 1883 is actually the oldest known biblical script. Oh my. From the Daily Mail. Okay. Can you explain this to me? Yeah. So in you know, in in 1893, um a, a, an adventurer and antiquities dealer and all around good guy who had some troubles Uh-oh. named Moses Shapira <laughs> um Cl- pr- produced a set of leather strips on which there was writing, Hebrew Ooh. writing, in a pr- particular kind of Hebrew script, um, maybe much like the Bible would have originally been written in. So, like, if you read Hebrew today, like in the modern Israeli Hebrew script or mm-hmm. the so-called Aramaic square script, it's not. That's not the Hebrew that would have been written during the biblical period. Not okay. the kinds of letters, but these were like the older kinds of letters. Oh, you know? okay. A kind of like Paleo Hebrew. That's or what experts would recognize. Whatever you want to call it. Um, okay. Yeah, some older, older like like the the Hebrew, na- like the is- Israel's national script of the Iron Age, and and the script that we find inscriptions in from the biblical period, which just roughly, you know, let's say a thousand BC down to whenever. Okay. So, so he produces these things and they've got this kind of writing on it. And the writing seems to be, it was quickly thought, some like version of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, oh. why would this be a big deal? Because the idea was that this version of the book of Deuteronomy would have dated back very, very far. Perhaps even somehow vaguely close to the writing of the book itself, which ties it into an obsession biblical scholars have had at least since the 19th century sooner really even the 18th century, let's say, which is the obsession of finding out who really wrote the Bible and what was the original form of the Bible and what changes did biblical books undertake by different authors and writers and editors and redactors throughout many centuries before we got the version we got. So you see, it's kind of like an enlightenment whodunit, like the version that was the real version must have been corrupted by other people later. And so we want to uncover. It's like Scooby-Doo. Yes, take the mask <laughs> off. If it wasn't for you darn kids. Yep. And now we're going to see what the real version is. So there's there's a kind of obsession there that biblical the biblical scholar world has had. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, aforementioned, have played a role in this too because you could imagine when the Dead Sea Scrolls oh, were found. Oh, that must have been amazing. Because these, I mean, prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this is true, the oldest manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew that we had oh. were from the year 1000 A.D., it's extraordinary. So this is like their medieval manuscripts. Um, there was a, a a little scrap of a thing called the Nash Papyrus, which I think is about as old as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I think we might have had that a little bit before, a couple decades before the Dead Sea Scrolls, but that's not much. Right. So this search for having like older manuscripts, or even in the case of, of well... People wanted to also, in light of the theories that were coming up during the 1800s about how Moses maybe really wasn't the author of the Torah, as the Bible doesn't really claim, but sort of claims, and as traditionalists, both Jewish and Christian, had claimed, right? It, there were then scholarly theories that said, no, he didn't write it. Rather, it was the product of many sources, many authors, editors, time, and editors okay. which seemed then to undermine this idea of the wonderful leader Moses, who's like, he's like our Aristotle, you know, who's like our great philosopher. So in response to Greco-Roman ideas of great philosophical thinkers and leaders, Jews could say, no, we've got Moses. Right. He's our man. But okay. these these scholarly theories that said, no, 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 Moses didn't do it. It was others. If you could find evidence of like a really old scroll that dated even closer to the time of Moses than what they had at that time, which was just medieval manuscripts. I mean, these medieval manuscripts are pretty cool, like the Aleppo Codex. They're just not that old. Right. Like a thousand years is pretty right. old. But it's not as old as you want it to be. And that often comes as a shock um, because you're like, wait, I would think that the oldest 
don't we have like some original writings of the Bible or something? Like, no. Oh, right. And in the case of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, not even close. The New Testament you could get within, who knows, maybe um, some people think that, you know, one of the earliest papyruses, papyri that we have, I think it's called the Rollins papyrus, maybe dates within a couple of decades to the authorship of the book. But that's still not exactly, you know, hot off the press. Maybe it was in the ancient world, but. So the Shapira so, scroll, okay. why did people come to believe that it was a forgery? Okay, well, because um, for several reasons, you could divide the reasons into ad hominem reasons. Okay. Reasons that had to do with Shapira the man. Okay. And then there were technical reasons. Hmm. Now, this is where it kind of gets fascinating because it's like, which of these are more compelling or should we should we just take the ad hominem reasons and throw them out? So... He kind of paraded this thing around and, you know, tried to sell it, I think at one point to the British Museum or something like that for like a million pounds, which was a lot of money at that time. Right. It would be today. If anybody wants to give me a million pounds today, I'll totally You're take like, it. I'll sell you lots of different stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, this is in this grand question of like, why do a forgery? One one tale as old as time is money. Money, right, money. right. And during the late 1800s, there were other discoveries that were being made. And so it allowed forgers to have examples of a script that they could copy and they could be like, see, it's just like the way they were writing back then. Right. So, so this guy, uh, and so he prayed this thing around and it was almost universally condemned as fake. Um, now Shapira had also forged some other things. Oh, some known things. I, I think he forged some Moabite documents. The Moabites were a group that lived just east of Israel across the Jordan River. Uh-huh. And one of the earliest, most spectacular inscriptions that had been found that was like Hebrew was the so-called Moabite stela or Moabite stone, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. had a script very much like Hebrew script and even mentions Israel at one point, which is one of the oldest references to Israel in any source that we have even existing. So that's pretty cool on its own. But, um, you know, this kind of was in the air and... So there was that. Okay. So he forged other things. He, you know, maybe did and said some sketchy things. And um, he actually ended up committing suicide in shame one year later after oh, this was rejected, oh. um, which doesn't prove that it was a forgery, but it's a sad story. And apparently he was a guy that had a lot of troubles with this stuff. So there's that. Wow. There's more, but there's that. On the other hand, also people looked at the language of this thing and said, now, why did now I said that this was supposed to be an earlier version of the book of Deuteronomy. It would be too obvious for a forger to just maybe copy the book of Deuteronomy itself and say, hey, look, an early version. No, it was a little bit different. And I, I was just reading through this recently, and it's it's pretty boring when you read through it. Let's come back to that point about it being boring, though. Okay. Um, put a pin in that because okay. I want to say something about that, but not now. Um, I'm just talking a lot here. Is that okay? Can I just yeah. can I stay on this roll here? Okay. Tell me, oh, expert. So... Um, the other reason has to do with spelling and the way the letters were formed. Now, if you, if I claimed to have found a man, a lost manuscript of Shakespeare and I'm, I was using phrases that we knew that people hadn't used in Shakespeare's time, or I was spelling words in a way that we were pretty sure they didn't spell words then, but did reflect the way that they spelled them later. And if you saw sure, like a book sure. on my table, which was like. 19th century great English spelling literature for beginners and some of my is. spelling errors also corresponded to right, things like that. Right. You might be like, Hey buddy, I saw what you did there. So there were some things like that. And some people have done really deep sleuthing and you could read all about it online. We'll link some articles here, but um, in the podcast description, but uh, there were things people found that they were like, yeah, that, that doesn't make sense. And that doesn't make sense. And the script seemed to be cobbled together from several existing scripts that people might have known about from the time, but you wouldn't know that unless you were an expert in the script. So um, 
that's that's why people thought it was a forgery, basically. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess I what has changed people's minds? Because like what, what where's the open door here? <laughs> well, basically what has changed people's minds is like no- what's oh, cracked open the door is maybe a little bit. What has changed people's minds is basically nothing. Except um, that there's um, a guy, a prominent, serious, real scholar named Adon Dershowitz, who has written a new article, came out in 2021. Um, It's called The Valediction of Moses, New Evidence on the Shapira-Deuteronomy Fragments in a a very prominent German uh, journal. Yeah. Um, You know, one of the leading journals of biblical studies. And he basically says, just wait a second. Actually... We shouldn't have dismissed this as a forgery. I think it's real. Ooh, he, I like bold claims. And like he that. boldly claims that in fact, um, it's it's authentic, and that it's they're on totally that these essentially that these. And I'm reading from the article here a, a, a quote: "The Shapira fragments are not only authentic artifacts." Dershowitz claims, mm-hmm. but are unprecedented in their significance. They preserve a pre-canonical antecedent of the book of Deuteronomy. Interesting. And he's apparently he's working on a full book about this. So th- I think it's just an article now, but he's working on on a book. Um, so he produces, he has a, a transcription of this and so on. Now, I cannot fully recount all of the reasons here. You'll have to read the article and I think you can read it publicly. I'll try to... Um, uh-huh. I'll... Um, um, I'll try to post it here if I can find it, or at least a reference to it. But basically, one thing that Dershowitz says that I think is very fascinating is this. He says people have people have rejected these documents for the ad hominem reasons. Right. And I was gonna guess, because I looked him up, he's he was Jewish. I thought for sure oh, that, see, yeah. that he was in some way connected to America, but it turned out he mm-hmm. was born to Jewish parents, converted to Christianity. Right. I think he was Prussian and Russian. Yep. So Shapiro. I could imagine some anti Jewish sentiment if toward not, him. If not anti Semitic outright. Mm-hmm. Um I mean right. that was just one thought that came to mind. Totally. And I bet I bet that um I thought for sure this was an American story, though, with the forging and the money and yeah, the blah, blah, blah. But that nope, it was going to go nope, that direction. Nope. Well, and you know, and who knows what role that might have played in the 1890s. Like, I, I don't know. But that's yeah, I'm a, just curious. About this that. is I mean, this is a field. Oh, you budding biblical scholars. This is a field that has been very popular. You know, after we've kind of discovered more or less kind of everything we can discover archaeologically and so on about the Bible. I know that biblical scholars would chafe at that. Statement, <laughs> but I'll admit Hot it. Take. I'll admit it. Biblical scholar. I'll admit it. Biblical studies has gotten pretty boring. Like there's really not a lot of new discoveries. We haven't discovered any new texts. Every once in a while, they'll find like some dusty pottery shard with half of a name on it and people will go bonkers. Uh And it's like, it just shows you how low the bar is. Okay. So, but yeah. So I forgot even what I was talking about there. I'm like making fun of biblical studies. Um, Oh, the ad hominem attack. Yes. He says that's one reason. Okay. Yes. So, oh, I was going to say one hot field in biblical studies is reception history. Right. So you can actually dig into this and and find out all kinds of, it's almost like doing these like like cultural detective stories about how the Bible is received in particular periods by particular people. And it's super fascinating. So there's probably a, there's definitely a story to be told there about Moses Shapira and, and that I would love to hear that story. Mm -hmm. Anti-Semitic things or whether that was in in play or not, but, and he's clearly, he was clearly a a pretty wild character, this uh, Shapira guy, but Dershowitz says, Hey, let's not get all ad hominem. 
And basically, now this is like re- reducing his point to something like really, really broad, but I'm, I'm just trying to like do it justice here, but also, you know, keep it. Right. Keep it PG here, okay, for the kids. <laughs> uh oh. No, no, no. I, I just mean like, <laughs> I, I, I just mean keep it PG in terms of like, let's not get into all kinds of crazy stuff. And you can read more about all the details. But sure. Dershowitz basically says, and here's here's my way of putting it. This is not Dershowitz's way of putting it. This is my way of putting it. If you read the Shapira scroll text, there's one really odd thing about it that makes you wonder if it's real, and it makes me even wonder if there's something to Dershowitz's claim, despite it all which is this. It is really, really boring. Oh, yeah. That makes sense to me. It is like the most boring Mm -hmm. thing possible. Like if you were going to forge something, why would you do this? Yeah. I think that's a really good argument. It's kind of dumb to forge. Like, for example, it has the Ten Commandments part, but it, it phrases them like partly in the first person. Uh, or it phrases some of the things in the first person that are not in the first person in Deuteronomy. Uh-huh. And it adds a couple of lines that are like not that interesting it, to me and yes. to a lot of people. Yes. So I think one of the claims is like... That's a pretty solid argument. It's like, why would someone forge this exactly this? Now, enter another piece of of intrigue. When this story first broke last year in 2020... They held like this secret symposium at Harvard University. Oh, fun. Yeah, of course. And one person I think who participated in that was one of my classmates, Naaman Patel at the University of Texas at Austin. Ah. She is quoted in the New York Times article that came out about this as saying that, and she's like, she's like pretty smart. Like she was actually the teaching assistant when I took Semitic philology, a class Uh I did very poorly in, Not (laughs) not her fault. I just, you know, I wasn't, it was the worst grade I got in my PhD oh, program. Oh, sad. At Harvard, they only had two grades, A and B plus. And a B plus, oh, uh, A no. kind of meant, A kind of meant like, oh, you're fine. Yeah, yeah, A B plus meant like, oh, you sad, cute little thing. Thanks for trying. <laughs> and so I was not meant to be a pure Semitic philologist. Right. Like Nama That's is. not your destiny. But here's the thing. Nama said, I think the case on the linguistic grounds for forgery is pretty weak. Oh, how fun. And I love that. Just purely based on the language, if you're going to do it that way. Now, another major, major scholar of epigraphy, um, which is to say um, the way that people wrote words and letters and the materials they used in the ancient world, Christopher Rolston at George Washington University has a long blog post about this. And he's just like, I'm summarizing. Chris, don't get mad at me. But summarizing, he's like, give me a break. Give me this a break. Is fake. This thing we all is know fake it. and we all know it. And he's got lots of one thing he points out that I didn't realize. He says, what was the motivation for this money? Maybe. Yes. But he points out there might have been a different uh, motivation, which is this context of the late 1890s. People were trying to refute the theories that Moses didn't write the the, the Torah. So by having a document that pushed the date in the first person. Well, yeah, I don't even know if the first person thing was I, I probably got the first person part wrong, like which part that is. But it's a little bit different from Deuteronomy, but it's like you sacrifice a little bit of the sense that it was the canonical version by trying to push the date back further. So, so he says, so I'm reading from Ralston's blog here. Now enter the Shapira strips. They solved everything and vindicated the Bible. That is the fact that the Shapira strips seem to demonstrate that Deuteronomy could be dated much closer to the time of Moses mm. than scholars such as Devet and others had contended was widely hailed as absolutely marvelous. And the Shapira strips or scrolls could absolutely demonstrate that Deuteronomy was much older than the late seventh century, which is the scholarly consensus. After all, the scripts of the Shapira strips were very similar to the script. The writing style was similar to the Mesha Stila and the Mesha Stila was ninth century. 
So uh, he says, of course, it should always be remembered that modern forgers and ancient forgers know their market. So they knew what they were. They knew what he knew. His, he, he knew what he was doing or whomever. And maybe Shapiro himself didn't um, forge, forge it. Um, and maybe Rolston thinks he did. I don't, I don't, you know, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, we'll, we'll post Rolston's long blog post if you want to take a deep dive. So there were ideological things at stake here about what it meant to believe in the Bible, to believe in Moses as an author, to believe that the Bible is an authentic document rather than some kind of series of pious forgeries that unfolded over many centuries. Um, and so now I, I would just go along with like the Chris Rolston's of the world and be like, yeah, obviously a forgery. But, um, you know, it's like if, um, you know, if a very good Semitic philologist is saying maybe it's real, I, you know, I'm like, well, maybe you just don't want to dismiss it out of hand. You know, here's the great thing about not being a Bible scholar. (laughs) One of Um, many great things. uh, Yeah. Um, is that I think the funner, the funner possibility Mm -hmm. is to imagine that maybe it could be real, right? Sure. That just makes such oh, a course. great story. Oh, it does. And somehow vindicates this man who died in such a tragic way. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I, I love it. Absolutely. I love it. I love leaving the door open. Leave the door that open. Possibility. In, in the New York Times article, I think um, one of the major scholars today of the book of Deuteronomy, Jeffrey Stackard at the University of Chicago, he says that he would really very much like for it to be authentic. I love it. I love it. Why not? We <laughs> Which is not saying it's authentic. That. He says he's quoting the article saying, I think he, that he would like it to be. So yeah. I, you know, I think I that's would really too. fun. But this is one of, but it does also tie into this deep seated scholarly desire to find a proto Bible, a Bible before the Bible, mm-hmm. which gets us is, is an enlightenment theme in a way, which is different from what Ralston was saying, which is like, it was supposed to prove maybe that Moses was the author. Okay. But you prove it by showing that there was a different version of the book that in fact, it really did go through the edits that scholars said it did go through. Like to me, that doesn't really work very well. So if that was their intention, they didn't really succeed in that very well. Right. Well, this reminds me of the um, a New Testament theme, which has to do with like the authenticity of Christian teaching or Christian scriptures. Mm-hmm. That whole criteria, uh, criterion of of embarrassment. Like, yes. you know, something yes. is probably this. This one doesn't always make full sense to me because mm-hmm. I'm like, well, but um, the idea that maybe there was something that what like some kind of um, event or something is it is included in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And if it caused embarrassment to the early church, we can say that it was maybe more authentic. Like the idea that women were the first like witnesses to right. the resurrection or yes. something. Yes. But then that kind of assumes a lot about the New Testament communities that may or may not be true. Like how do we know that they would never trust the word of a woman? Right. Like maybe there are anti-Jewish right. ideas right. about like right. women standing in Jewish communities. Or you something make an like assumption that. about what it would have been embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, well, there's only so much we can know about that. But I want to, I want to ask you about another big New Testament story. Oh, we did the Old Testament. Let's go to the and New And it is Testament. connected to your alma mater, Harvard. Oh, I, I know where this is going. Um, it's a little embarrassing. You told me about this a while ago because I think it, it is of interest to me on a number of fronts. But 
Um, I'm I'm referring to an Atlantic article in 2016, and the title of it is "The Unbelievable Tale of Jesus's Wife." Yes, and the subtitle is great: "A Hotly Contested, Supposedly Ancient Manuscript Suggests Christ Was Married, But Believing in Its Origin Story." a real-life Da Vinci Code involving a Harvard professor, a one-time Florida pornographer, and (laughs) an escape from East Germany requires a big leap of faith. And basically, this article um, basically argues in broad strokes, so spoiler alert, and then I want to hear you comment, that there was this... um, the. there was a small fragment, uh, an ancient fragment, where Jesus refers to his wife, like, right. which sounds like a old joke, like my wife says, you know. <laughs> um, but and this very, very, very famous scholar at Harvard um, w- was wrong, basically, about this claim. And there's this whole sordid tale that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Care to comment? Uh, I do care to comment, Doctor Brian Doak. Um, so. So in 2012, I think, in Rome, Karen King, major scholar at Harvard Divinity School, um, major scholar of early Christianity and the so-called Gnostic texts. At uh, Rome. In Rome. In Rome, like the yeah, capital. I know, right? I know. Well, this, this is, this is a, a story about the perils of media and the Bible and the media and all this stuff because rather than doing a process which you would normally do as a scholar, a very careful vetting process of, mm-hmm. an, of a particularly explosive artifact, mm-hmm. it would get really boring, really geeky. Instead, she went kind of Indiana Jones on it. You go in with the pistol and the whip. Nice, and, you nice. Know, you kind of burst into the museum like, look at my thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and there's, there's, there's more, there's, there's, there are things to be learned. And there's, in fact, a whole new book out above the, uh, about this called Veritas. And it Interesting. Has this long, um, um, subtitle. Um, it, Veritas is Harvard's motto, which means truth. But actually, this Ouch. whole story is Ouch. about yeah, an um, untruth. Ariel Sabar was the one who wrote this Atlantic article in 2016. He exposed this forgery, um, and then I think there's this whole it's book great out. article. Okay, so in 2012, she goes to this conference and with almost like a press kit ready to go and a documentary in process oh and boy. all that stuff. Oh boy comes out with this papyrus and it's this little piece, this little scrap. It's like the size of the palm of your hand and it's got writing on it, um, Coptic writing. And you can't read all of it, but one of the phrases says, and I quote, Jesus said to them, quote, my wife, dot, dot, dot. And then it goes off the edge. (laughs) My wife, what? Okay. So now this idea about Jesus and the wife is one of the longest standing conspiracy tropes about early Christianity. The New Testament is famously silent on Jesus's... Whether or not he had like a nuclear family. What what his nuclear family was like. His father actually even kind of disappears from the picture. Joseph, of course, there are reasons in the Bible from the virgin birth, right? Right, not really the father, right. But, then, but then he seems to stick with Mary in the story. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus. right. But, but then why isn't he ever mentioned? Of course, people died all the time and at very young ages. His father could have died. Perhaps Jesus' father actually abandoned the family. Um, something that I think is particularly painful, but also allows a point of connection for a lot of people to, who, who come from families where the father has abandoned them. Maybe you think that Jesus experienced uh, the abandonment of a father. Okay, I'm getting very textured into this. I'm going way back. But So you don't know a lot about that, but you don't know about Jesus' romantic life. Did he do a version of like dating in the first century? <laughs> I don't think there's any Christian that thinks that Jesus would have, you know, the, the, the Orthodox Christian proclamation that Jesus was without sin, just like us in all ways, but without sin, um, that, you know, that if he'd, if he'd dated, that that would have been a sin. 
Or it was, certainly wouldn't have been considered a sin in his context or any Christian context for Jesus to have been married. But we hear nothing about it. The tradition, of course, is that Jesus was single. Um, but there have always, there have been like conspiracy theories and stories that have come up around the idea of Mary Magdalene, um, who's a character around Jesus, who was then later conflated with a prostitute right, who's not right. a prostitute in the Bible. You know, and there's this long story about the way that these women are treated. Of course, you mentioned that the women are some of the first to, or or the first to proclaim. Bear witness. To bear to witness his. to the risen Jesus. Jesus apparently had a lot of female followers. And so what's the dealio? Well, now one review I read of this, which I'll post, um, the review a review of Sabar's book about this discovery says, basically, look, Conservative Christians have sinned many times in trying to make Jesus into like this Rambo macho, <laughs> but liberal Christianity sins as well by trying to basically show and like this, like why, why did now this gets straight to, Oh, it. like why, what are the ideological reasons why she would, right. why do the, why, why would the, ideal, why would a very, you know, mainstream, probably very politically and religiously liberal scholar like Karen King at Harvard Divinity School be so excited about something that would show that Jesus had a wife. Well, because it undermines the traditional narrative. Right. And right. so you're more, it, you find something that undermines it and you're like, yes, and you run with it. They didn't do the proper vetting. And basically this guy, Sabar, through his detective work, he found the forger. What a fun story. And this yeah, is. the forger, like you said, and this, I was actually perusing, I was perusing many sources and we'll post all of these in the description, but I thought the, um, the Wikipedia article on this is really good. I like Wikipedia. People make fun of Wikipedia. I don't encourage. I don't. Like I don't encourage students to use it because it's like a cheat sheet. But like, if you're trying to get an encyclopedia, I mean, there are biblical scholars who work on these articles. Like, I've con I've done several Wikipedia articles. I things. think that's it's, it's um, well, especially with high profile stories, mm -hmm. it's usually pretty well regulated by people in yeah. the field. Anyway, so, other other thing. That's our little ad yeah, for Wikipedia. little ad for Wikipedia. Um, and it's free. But it, this is from the Wikipedia article. I just think this is this is crazy. Like, um. This journalist published an article in The Atlantic, which identified the owner uh, of the papyrus initially because, you know, the provenance where it came from was unknown. But it was this guy, Walter Fritz, a German immigrant living in Florida. Fritz was a former Egyptology student who dropped out of the Free University of Berlin in the early 1990s after the chairman of its Egyptology Institute accused him of intellectual plagiarism. Uh -oh. In other words, faking things. Fritz acknowledged studying Coptic, the language in which the papyrus is composed. Later, Fritz left his job as director of the Stasi Museum in Berlin after items from the museum went missing. Wonder who did that. <laughs> after moving to Florida, he ran successful, quote, hot wife pornography websites featuring his wife, an American who believes she can channel God and Michael the Archangel. This is the most Florida man, Florida story. She had even published a book of sayings that she believes God transmitted through her. The Atlantic oh speculated that Fritz may have been motivated to forge the text by financial issues, a desire to make the Da Vinci Code a reality. Karen King was a consultant on the Da Vinci Code movie and was really into it. <laughs> or to embarrass an academic establishment that had spurned his ambitions. In addition, um, Fritz claimed to have been sexually abused by a Catholic priest while growing up in Southern Germany. Fritz denied that he forged this thing um, but admitted that he could have if he had tried. Uh, I think, wait, 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 wait. We got to stop for a second because one of the things that I think is so funny yeah. about this yeah. is the whole thing about wanting to embarrass the academic yes. establishment. Yes. Well, yes. if he did it, uh, mission accomplished. If he did it, um, you know, so. that That's what makes a story just like a hilarious story to me it makes it 
and sad kind of too. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of things, but that part made me laugh a little bit. So there's a pretty, yeah, there's a pretty serious like um, weird religion subplot there with mm-hmm. the wife and with all the kind of stuff that was that was going on there. So so we basically know for a fact, and Karen King has admitted that in fact. Um, she did not do her due diligence. Yes, admitted that it's probably a forgery. Although in this review of the book I've been referring to, of Sabar's book, I've not read so much about it. It's like, why would I even read the book now? Like, um, it's probably a good book. Um, it, we'll, lo- we'll, it sounds great. We'll put I'd a like link to, to all this it. stuff. But the author of this review um, says, well, you know, it's funny if you look in some of Karen... And I want to ask you about this. I know you've been kind of okay. interviewing me on this, but I'm going to flip this back on you now. Uh-oh. Here's what an author claims... Okay, here's I, I should just refer to the actual article here. Um, it's by um, uh, uh, a journalist named Chris Hedges, um, and the article is called "The Forged Gospel of Jesus' Wife," and it's a review of Sabar's book. Okay. Now, I want to ask you what you think of this, and if you think this is fair, and just reflect on the field of history here. Hedges, in his review, uh, and he's also talking about Sabar here as well, the author of the uh-huh. book. They kind of take King to task, but also say that liberal Christians and liberal historians have created this problem just as bad as anyone else. Oh, yeah, and here's how and why they created it. And he's they're quoting, I guess, things that Karen King has written in other publications. And this is from the review, but it's quoting Sabar. Okay, so it's getting kind of meta. But history, Karen King writes, quote, is not about truth, but about power relations, unquote. She argues that historians must, quote, abandon the association between Ugh. truth and chronology, unquote. Ugh. She calls for a, quote, reconceptualizing the Western construction of time, unquote, and sees history as, quote, discontinuous and unpatterned. Oh, wait, you, you want me to stop Ugh. now? I'm not going to this more. History, she writes, quote, is not serious, real, or true, Unquote. History, she insists, is, quote, about enlarging one's imaginative universe and never saying no to a story, a song, a poem <sighs> that gives life, heartens, teaches or consoles and need never fail to call it true. Unquote. She calls facts, quote, little tyrannies. Unquote. And the accusation is that it is this kind of postmodern historiography that has created the kind of world that we live in where you can't even tell truth from fiction. And by the way, who even cares if it's a forgery, if it's like, <laughs> say, a poem that gives life or heartens, in this case, for liberal Christianity, heartens women and the idea that the Gospels are fake and Jesus had, you know, just, yeah, powerful wife who was, a, you know, a, a, a woman, obviously. Uh-huh, you know. uh-huh. Now, as an historian care to comment well okay i i will say i am a historian and i'm not a historian of of early christianity like like um dr karen king is so i can't comment on her her own like the 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 field that she works in but i am unnerved by the idea that you would want to undermine the discipline entirely. And you think those statements do undermine it and they're not an accurate description of what history or historiography well, should be. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think it's a, it's a real reflection on the times that we live in. Mm. Like the idea that you would... Um, so, yeah, I think most people who work, at least in my field, which is in in the history of, of religion in the U.S., would say every time you tell a story, you're reframing History, and I teach my students this way, history is an action. It's not like you write it down and then that's the law. That's mm-hmm. how it was, but it's more like a continuing conversation. And so I I t- tell my students all the time, 
that's why I refer to them as historians, is that we are doing something together when we're like recounting these facts Mm -hmm. and we are creating new forms of meaning. That being said, Mm -hmm. I think there's a difference between talking about um, like a bias and then just something that's flat out did not happen Mm. or is not true, Mm. which I think like what the the logic of what she's saying is the same stuff that Kellyanne Conway was saying about fake, what did she call it? Like the fake news kind of argument. So I think that's probably the thing that people find a little uncomfortable is that there's some symmetry there between what Karen King is arguing and what Kellyanne Conway was arguing. And so... You know, I mean, like in my field, one of the hot topics right now is the 1619 project. And I don't think that anyone, any historian would say that they're they're talking about like ideological frameworks, Mm -hmm. not about whether or not slavery happened. You know, I mean, so I think that, yes, there has to be a there there. But there's always a there's always a way you can go in a lot of arguments, you know, uh-huh. where you just you can go relativist if you're trapped. Sure. People say like, oh, yeah, history was told by the winners. Right. But there are certain kind of foundational things that we say like, yeah, well, I mean, like in, in New Testament. Well, let me just take it into your field. Does do people ever say like Israel just didn't exist? Yes. Um, but very few, right? Very few, but there's definitely a revisionist kind of crowd. But they would say similar kinds of things about history, and they've been accused of of hurting the field of history as, for saying those exact kinds yeah. of things. Yeah, you know? I'm not willing to go there because I think, like, from my perspective, yes. I mean, I, I will teach my students history is myth-making. Like, mm-hmm. you are creating a story that gives a group of people meaning, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that that there are not facts that are involved right. in the telling. That's my own. Maybe I'm just like a really old fashioned person, but also this reads to me as someone who's extremely powerful, who doesn't want to admit that they're wrong. Well, and I, you know, and these quotes I think are from things that she's written beforehand about history. And he's saying, see, this is the way liberal historiography. Has. Oh, okay. These, I haven't read that review. Yeah, these weren't, Interesting. These weren't her responses. Necess- he doesn't have sources for the quotes, but I, th- I believe these are things that she oh, said in her publications. Okay. But he's, what he's saying is, Look, this, this is what this gets you. This is where this is where this gets you. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like if my wife says to me, I don't like the way you're loading the dishwasher. And I'm like, is there really a right way to load the dishwasher? You just go relativist. Right, right, right. But then it does it not undermine if you if you go that way. Now it's like I can never tell her how to load the dishwasher again. I can just say we can yeah. just say we have different ways and nobody knows. This is where I think it's like an argument on um, not on principle, but to, on degree, like. Yeah, you know, certainly there are moments where people will create little tyrannies out of historiographies. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's just a highly contested debates going on right now all over the country about how we tell the story of the United States, right? right? And um, so that is an issue, I think, of degree. We don't think that you shouldn't tell the stories. Like, we just think we disagree about how those stories ought to be told and who's included and which actors are emphasized over others. That doesn't mean we think that the whole thing is just like should. I mean, weirdly, I think that there is agreement even right. in these really, really polarized communities that we ought to be telling ourselves sure. some kind of something. Of course. <laughs> so. I think I think that these two forgery cases, though, also show us this tendency, which has become a, a key problem in our age about being very quick to believe what you already wanted to believe. That's true. 
because in both cases, like confirmation bias. In both cases, um, at least in, in 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 different ways, depending on how you analyze the Shapira text. But then certainly the Gospel of Jesus' wife, the so-called Gospel. What an inflammatory title, too. Right. Gos- as if it as if it was a real gospel. Like we don't know that this came from. I mean, we know it was a forgery, but even if it was real. We wouldn't have known that it came from a full quote gospel, which is a full recounted story of Jesus' life. So it was it was a media made title, which I think Karen King even knew and admitted that it was inflammatory and searched for a better title. Mm. There's a way of looking at this in which Karen King is a villain. There's a way of looking at it in which she is a careful scholar and not a villain, but she was she was duped. Um, and she used maybe some of her own institutional clout on Harvard Theological Review, a place where I worked actually for a few years when I was a PhD student to get this published without the proper vetting. And, and so it's a story about Dunning-Kruger and about the way that we believe things that we want to believe and about how hard it is really to change our minds and about how, how vulnerable we become to lies when we're not willing to think about whether we're wrong. You know, I think, and I should say some of the stuff that I, um, some of the conclusions that I came to were before that I knew that she wasn't talking about that one story right. when she's saying a little tyrannies right. cuz i'd probably agree with a lot of mm. a lot of that but yeah i think you know to me one of the funnest things about these stories is that they show how it's important for us to interrogate our own biases and mm. really just to be humble and open i think the humility thing goes a long way yeah i never i, I wouldn't want to be in her shoes you know that's, yeah. that's got to be an uncomfortable She's a great scholar, and I'm sure, you know, I, I know this has probably been a huge problem and embarrassment for her, but I hope she recovers from it and does good work on those Coptic texts. But, um, you know, um, and, and the feminist angles and, and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, I that like the pursues, idea like, that go for it's it. possible to think about this stuff. But, um, you know, she's not helped the movement, let's say, with this. Hey, thanks for listening, weirdos. Keep it weird, everyone. We're trying to help. For extras on subjects covered in this episode and other related materials, don't forget to follow us on the socials and visit our website, weirdreligion.com. Our production features musical stylings by our own Brian Doak, but our official theme music is by Cassie Blum. And our album artwork is by John Williams. When you podcast, podcast with us. Thanks, everyone. Ta-da. Ta-da.